This is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Petro on diagnosis and risk stratification in blunt cardiac trauma, a truly nebulous diagnosis. On a recent trauma call, I was asked by a resident whether we should consider a blunt cardiac injury in a patient that we had. Patient had a minimally displaced sternal fracture following an MVC. They were hemodynamically stable and they had some other orthopedic injuries, but they were otherwise fine. It got me thinking, as this is a diagnosis that we occasionally consider yet really don't have great evidence to guide our approach. The resident and I discussed the case and we ended up doing an ECG, which was normal, but the troponin came back positive. According to the most recent guidelines, which were published way back in 2012 by EAST, or the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, yes, that's the most recent ones we have, they state that a normal ECG and a negative troponin effectively rule out blunt cardiac injury, but this patient had a positive trope. Three times our upper limit of normal. So now what? Keeping that case in mind, I want to focus on three questions. What are blunt cardiac injuries anyways? How do we diagnose them, and should troponins be part of the evaluation? And do sternal fractures even matter? Starting with the first question, what are blunt cardiac injuries? The short answer is, we don't really have great diagnostic criteria. That said, there's a few injuries that are often considered as part of the definition. These include myocardial contusion, which might manifest kind of like this patient with some ECG changes or an elevated troponin. Pericardial injuries, which can be really quite bad, especially if the heart eviscerates through the pericardium. Valvular injuries, super uncommon, but if they do occur, can be quite devastating. Might be a new murmur on exam, an abnormal echo, and often they present in shock. Coronary artery injuries, and most devastatingly, cardiac chamber rupture, and these patients rarely make it to hospital. Now we have some sense of what we're talking about, let's keep going. We know that cardiac injuries are an independent predictor of poor outcome, but that's really heavily weighted by those whose hearts basically just burst apart. Up to 10% of those patients who die from blunt injury have been shown to have major cardiac injury. Realistically, most patients, including the one I described at the start, they're in the majority. They typically have no long-term sequelae, just a minor contusion. It's pretty fair to say most patients at risk of bad outcome are going to be pretty obvious. They're either in profound shock or perhaps ongoing dysrhythmias. Or they don't even make it to hospital. It does beg the question, though, how do we diagnose blunt cardiac injury? Here's the thing. There's no gold standard, so it makes it very difficult to compare studies since so many different definitions are floating around out there. Most commonly, we'll see a combination of an ECG or echo abnormalities and possibly a troponin elevation in patients who are at risk for BCI. Those are typically what's considered a definition of blunt cardiac injury. The only level one evidence that's out there is to obtain an ECG on all patients in whom you suspect blunt cardiac injury, but wouldn't anyone with a chest wall or thoracic injury potentially be at risk? Yeah, and that's what makes it difficult. Frankly, I don't do an ECG on all my patients with evidence of thoracic trauma. ECGs alone, we're told, aren't good enough. I don't even know, though, if a small injury to the heart has any significance on the patient's outcome. 
Here's when I start to consider BCI and I'll get an ECG. If I see a dysrhythmia on the monitor, hypotension that I can't explain or doesn't appear related to hemorrhage or other forms of shock, an abnormal bedside echo, some obvious CT findings like fair amount of mediastinal stranding or pericardial findings. You may even consider it if there's persistent tachycardia without another cause. And then there's some evidence that a hemothorax or a sternal fracture in a patient that's fallen greater than 20 feet also puts them at risk of BCI, but again, that's just an association. After you've considered blunt cardiac injury, most people will get a troponin, and together with a negative troponin and a normal ACG, this virtually excludes any likelihood of blunt cardiac injury. The real issue is what to do if the troponin's positive, and that we simply don't know. We know that patients with elevated troponins following trauma have worse outcomes, but this may simply be an association and not causal. It's pretty consistent with patients with other disease states too, like sepsis. If your troponin is elevated regardless of the cause, then you're going to do worse. In our setting, we don't routinely do troponins for trauma patients, but if I'm worried about blunt cardiac injury, and again, I'm mostly looking for dysrhythmias or gross wall motion abnormalities on bedside echoes, or hypotension that's not explained, then I'll go get a troponin. Back to our patient, they just had an isolated troponin elevation. In general, these patients almost invariably have a benign clinical course. Though guidelines still suggest 24 to 48 hours admission if it's elevated, and that's what we did. Patient got admitted, an echo was done, serial troponins were performed, and the patient had a normal course and they were discharged. Finally, do we care about sternal fractures? Short answer is not really. If they're isolated, then the evidence doesn't support further workup. In the largest study on this, over 1,800 patients, only 1.8% had cardiac contusions or lacerations. So this patient probably didn't need a workup at all. He had an isolated sternal fracture without other thoracic injuries. We got ourselves into a bit of a testing tailspin by sending the troponin. The take-home points are, if you suspect blunt cardiac injury, then a negative ECG and a troponin are sufficient to rule it out. Don't make troponins a routine part of your trauma patient workup, unless there's a feature that's concerning for blunt cardiac injury, and for me that includes dysrhythmias, an abnormal echo, unexplained hypotension, or CT evidence of significant mediastinal or cardiac injury. And finally, no need to worry about isolated sternal fractures. These really are predictably benign. So despite the nebulous nature of the diagnosis of blunt cardiac trauma, what we do know is that a negative ECG and troponin are sufficient to rule it out, and that isolated sternal fractures are generally benign. But when do we order a troponin in the first place? Well, based on expert opinion and some literature, it's reasonable to order a troponin for any dysrhythmia, for unexplained hypotension or persistent tachycardia, and any CT evidence of mediastinal or cardiac injury. For those with a positive troponin, the conservative approach is to admit and get an echo. Now, in other news, I'm very excited to announce a new EM Cases collaboration with Canada's best EM journal, CGEM, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. I recently chatted with Ian Steele, the CGEM editor, and with Hans Rosenberg, their social media editor, who you know from EM Quick Hits, and we've decided to feature the best of CGEM on EM Quick Hits. 
So stay tuned for Canada's best peer-reviewed EM research delivered to you in easy, quick hits. Next up, we have a special guest, the only world expert on atrial fibrillation that I could find who has no financial conflict of interest, AFib researcher and emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto, Dr. Claire Atzma, who was actually on our very first podcast on atrial fibrillation. Now, there are some very surprising and confusing suggestions in the latest AFib guidelines when it comes to anticoagulation. So here's Dr. Atzma to give us the definitive lowdown on which patients need anticoagulation in the ED and thereafter. Two sets of AFib guidelines came out in 2018 that offer new recommendations around cardioversion of acute AFib patients, who are defined as patients in AFib for less than 48 hours. The first group, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, or CCS for short, made two changes to their previous recommendations on the topic. Now, full disclosure, I am on that panel. I'm actually the only emergency physician on the panel, and the CCS is the only major cardiovascular guidelines group with an emergency physician on the panel, so kudos to them. The other group is headed by Ian Steele, whom you probably know is an internationally renowned EM scientist from Ottawa. I was on that panel too, and it included a diverse range of clinicians and scientists, including cardiologists. The latter group created the CAPE Best Practices Checklist, which contains only one change from previous recommendations, as opposed to two changes in the CCS guidelines paper. The first change made by the CCS centers on the 48-hour cutoff for cardioversion eligibility. Instead of recommending cardioversion without prior oral anticoagulation, or OAC, if the AFib duration is less than 48 hours, they now recommend reserving this for the lowest-risk stroke patients. Specifically, that's patients with a CHADS-2 score of less than 2. If the patient has a CHADS-2 score of 2 or more, they are now recommending that only cardiovert the patient if they present within 12 hours of AFib onset. The Kate Best Practices checklist actually makes a very similar recommendation. It isn't visible in the flowchart if you're reading the document, but in the associated text, which I recommend you read, it's very brief, under the title, Stable Low Risk for Short-Term Stroke, it says, and I quote, clear onset less than 48 hours or... If 24 to 48 hours and two or more of the CHAD 65 criteria may not be low risk. So that implies that they aren't low risk, we probably shouldn't be cardioverting these patients. Now, we're using CHAD 65 algorithm here, and the CCS uses CHADS 2, but basically it's very similar, almost the same. You might ask, well, why the difference between timing? Uh, in between the two groups, 12 hours versus 24 hours. Well, it's just because there isn't very good evidence on the exact timing and safety. The only real evidence for 12 versus 24 hours comes from the FinCV study, which found elevated odds of 30 days stroke at 12 to 24 hours cardioversion and at 24 to 48 hours compared to cardioverting at less than 12 hours. But the 12 to 24 hour odds ratio was actually slightly higher than the 24 to 48 hour odds ratio, which doesn't make sense according to the Bradford Hill criteria of dose response and biologic plausibility. The longer duration you'd think would have higher, not lower odds of stroke. But it probably occurs because there was only 42 outcomes in this cohort of over 5,000 cardioversions. So the results aren't very stable. You need more outcomes to be uh, more stable. But that's the best we have. It's the largest cohort that we have. Now, 
whether you or a researcher chooses to slice and dice the hours to set a different cutoff, 12 versus 24 hours or 15 hours, based on the patient's probably not-so-certain report of the exact hour the AFib began, probably matters less than just considering a longer duration of AFib as a risk factor for stroke, just like the other risk factors in the CHADS algorithms, like hypertension or diabetes. That's really the take-home point here. The longer the duration of AFib, the higher the risk of stroke if they're cardioverted back into normal sinus rhythm, even if it's under 48 hours. And I'd point out that that 48-hour cutoff was originally chosen long ago by an expert consensus that noted that there was no actual evidence for the 48-hour choice. Now, the risk may be so small that it makes no clinical difference in patients with a CHADS vast score of zero or a CHADS 65 algorithm negative, but once you add in other risk factors for stroke, it may become additive or even exponential. So that's why both groups are asking you to think about stroke risk if you encounter someone who's been in AFib for 12, 24, up to 48 hours who wants to be cardioverted. And whether it wouldn't be simply easier to put them on oral anticoagulation for three weeks, put them on some rate control, and refer them to someone else to cardiovert them in three weeks' time, like an electrophysiology or EP clinic. So that's the first change. The 48-hour cutoff is now shortened for patients with two or more CHAD65 algorithm risk factors. The second change recommended by the CCS is not recommended by the Cape Best Practices Checklist. It states that all patients who are cardioverted out of acute AFib get put on oral anticoagulation, or OAC, afterward, regardless of their CHADS VAST score or CHADS 65 algorithm, for a minimum of four weeks. Now let's back up a bit first on this one. For years now, all groups have been recommending that a patient is started on oral anticoagulation after cardioversion according to their stroke risk score. That means if they are positive on the CHAD65 algorithm, which either they're over the age of 65 or if they're under 65, they have one of the CHADS2 risk factors, regardless of their discharge rhythm, i.e. even if you got them back into sinus and they're leaving the ED in sinus rhythm, you must start them on oral anticoagulation. Now, preferably that would be a DOAC uh, because that has onset within the first few hours. And that protects the patient from having a stroke early on. That's because cardioversion itself actually increases the risk of stroke via atrial stunning and impairment of left atrial emptying, even after the patient is back in normal sinus rhythm. So by giving them a DOAC, which has early onset, you've protected them against having an early stroke after cardioversion. So if you're already initiating CHAD65 algorithm positive patients on oral anticoagulation after you've cardioverted them, as per all the guidelines, that's CAPE, CCS, heart and stroke, Europeans, then that only leaves the patients who are CHAD65 algorithm negative. In other words, patients who are under the age of 65 who have no risk factors. And in those specific patients, I haven't seen any evidence of increased risk of stroke after cardioversion. Now that said, the rate of strokes is so small that the study that would be powered to detect a difference in giving patients oral anticoagulation versus not would be humongous, 50,000, 60,000 patients. And of course, it would take years and years to conduct. So we may never know for sure. I've seen studies with zero strokes in this particular patient cohort and up to 10 strokes in about 2,800 cardioversions. That's a stroke risk of 0.36%. But it's based on 10 strokes. So it could be higher or it could be lower. We can't base anything on only 10 strokes. Now, the idea of oral anticoagulation after cardioversion of even the lowest risk patients actually isn't new. The CHESS guidelines recommended it as early as 2012, and the Europeans added it as a small line in their 100-page-plus guidelines from 2016. The AHA 2019 guidelines don't recommend it. So you might put me on the spot and ask me, well, what do I do clinically? 
Well, I'm a researcher, and I know how we like to assign risk factors points to make them simple for clinicians to use in practice. But in reality, all risk factors aren't created equal. For example, a patient with only hypertension has an annual risk of stroke of 1.6%, whereas a patient who's aged 65 to 74 actually has a 2.1% risk, but they both get one point. And of course, the risk is actually continuous with age. The cutoff of 65 isn't really real per se. Of course, your risk gradually goes up as your age goes up. So if I'm seeing a 62-year-old patient in the ER, I would probably discuss with him the option, or her, of four weeks of a DOAC to protect him or her from something very unlikely, but certainly potentially devastating if he did have the terrible luck of being one of the few who has a stroke after cardioversion. And the reality is there is very little downside to four weeks of a DOAC. It's very brief. Not much can go wrong in that amount of time, and, you know, unless you fall down the stairs or get run over. However, if I'm seeing a 45-year-old who bikes to work every day, I might tell him about the very low risk of having a stroke in the next 30 days in his age bracket and advise him not to bother. My bigger concern is that they won't get stopped on it, that the family doctor won't know about this new change in practice and will continue the oral anticoagulation. So really, you can go either way on this one. You can go with the CCS recommendation uh, and the Europeans or stick with the CAPE best practice checklist and the AHA. If something happens and I happen to get called in as the expert, I will defend not giving four weeks of oral anticoagulation based on the current lack of evidence for giving it to patients with a CHADS vast score of zero or CHADS 65 algorithm negative. But if they are positive on the CHADS 65 algorithm, Regardless of whether or not they leave the ED in AFib or normal sinus rhythm after you've attempted or had successful cardioversion, they should be started on oral anticoagulation. So historically, we've gone ahead and cardioverted patients with atrial fibrillation for less than 48 hours without anticoagulation based on expert opinion. Now, the new guidelines are recommending safe cardioversion with anticoagulation only for the patients with the lowest risk profile for stroke those with a CHADS-2 of less than 2, and if the CHADS-2 is 2 or more, to only cardiovert if the onset of atrial fibrillation is within 12 hours. The key point here being that the longer the duration of AFib, the higher the risk of stroke if cardioverted. So that's the safe timing of cardioversion change in the guidelines. What about the idea of anticoagulating all patients who are cardioverted regardless of stroke risk for at least four weeks, even if they're CHADS2 or CHAD65 negative? Well, this is only in the CCS guidelines based again on expert opinion only. And what you need to weigh for each of these really low risk patients individually is the really low risk of major bleeding versus the really low risk of stroke. Just remember that you definitely should be anticoagulating all patients who are CHADS65 positive or CHADS2 of two or more immediately after attempted cardioversion, unless, of course, they're at really high risk for a major bleed. Up next, we've got Maria Vankovic, who was on our recent Burn and Electrical Injuries main episode podcast, weighing in on the morphine versus hydromorphone controversy. I was on shift the other day with an excellent EM resident. She was preparing to discharge a healthy 45-year-old patient with renal colic. I saw her beginning to write a prescription for hydromorphone, and I asked her why she was choosing hydromorphone over morphine. It's been a while, maybe a long while, but I can still remember what it's like as a learner sometimes getting confused with all the practice variation among staff, and opioid prescribing is definitely a hot topic with a lot of practice variation. 
So I took a few minutes to learn why she thought hydromorphone might be a better choice for this patient, and I might have gone on a little bit of a rant to dispel some of the common misconceptions about hydromorphone, and I'd like to share a version of that rant here. More and more of us have been moving away from oxycocet because of its higher potential for abuse, but an interesting trend has been the increased use of hydromorphone, particularly compared to morphine. In the U.S., ED use of hydromorphone essentially doubled from 2005 to 2010, and both ED use and prescriptions for hydromorphone continue to rise since then, which is the same trend we have been seeing in Canada. The number of people who filled a prescription for hydromorphone in Ontario increased by about 30% over 2013 to 2016. And during that same time, morphine and oxycodone prescriptions remained relatively stable. The shift towards much more potent opioids, such as hydromorphone, is concerning. What a lot of people don't realize is that hydromorphone has greater euphoric effects and much greater potential for abuse compared to morphine. Like oxycodone, hydromorphone has a faster time of onset. It's 10 times more lipid-soluble than morphine, so it more rapidly penetrates the blood-brain barrier, resulting in a very fast onset. This increases likability. In fact, hydromorphone has been found to be very similar to oxycodone with respect to abuse potential. The street value of hydromorphone is in general higher than morphine, which is also an indicator of its likability and recreational use potential. In addition to concerns for abuse, there is data suggesting hydromorphone is associated with more adverse events than other opioids, and this includes things such as desaturations and inadvertent overdoses. Another problem is that studies show that eMERGE docs are generally overdosing hydromorphone and underdosing morphine. It's really important to understand hydromorphone's equi-analgesic dosing. The equi-analgesic dose of one milligram of oral hydromorphone is five milligrams of oral morphine. This one to five oral ratio is very different for the IV formulations. One milligram of IV hydromorphone is equal to at least seven, and some sources quote up to 11 milligrams of IV morphine. So once again, the equal analgesic dosing of oral hydromorphone to oral morphine is one to five, but the IV equal analgesic dosing is one milligram IV hydromorphone equaling seven to 11 milligrams IV morphine. So now that we have a better understanding of its equi-analgesic dosing, we need to ask ourselves, if hydromorphone has greater potential for abuse and diversion, why would we use it over morphine, for example? One of the common misconceptions is that hydromorphone provides greater analgesia than morphine. This is actually not true. Studies have shown that morphine and hydromorphone at equi-analgesic doses are very similar and have similar side effects. There was one meta-analysis that seemed to support hydromorphone having a small advantage in analgesia, but when you actually look at the studies included, you can see that equi-analgesic dosing was not honored. When given an equi-analgesic morphine equivalence, hydromorphone does not appear to provide better analgesia, and there is no good evidence to support that it causes less pruritus, nausea, or constipation. Rather, there is evidence supporting that its side effects are the same as for morphine. Another misconception is that hydromorphone doesn't have toxic metabolites that accumulate in patients with renal failure. 
I remember learning in med school that hydromorphone was a cleaner drug and didn't have dirty metabolites like morphine. This is not entirely true. Both morphine and hydromorphone get broken down into metabolites that are renally cleared. Morphine is partially metabolized into M6G and M3G. It's morphine's M6G metabolite that we typically remember as the one that can accumulate in renal failure, causing over-sedation and potentially respiratory depression, which is why we avoid it in patients with chronic kidney disease, particularly with a GFR less than 50. Morphine's other metabolite, called M3G, has a hydromorphone equivalent, H3G. These 3G metabolites also rely on renal clearance. When they accumulate, they cause neurotoxicity. Patients can present like a delirium. They can have agitation, confusion, but also myoclonus, hallucinations, and potentially seizures. Hydromorphone's H3G metabolite may in fact be two and a half times more neurotoxic than morphine's M3G equivalent. Now, patients with chronic kidney disease may be one of the few times where we might preferentially choose hydromorphone over morphine because of the potential for morphine's M6G metabolite to cause respiratory depression. But I think we need to be aware that hydromorphone is not all roses and it does have a renally cleared neurotoxic metabolite that has the potential to accumulate. So to recap, while hydromorphone prescribing has significantly increased, there isn't any great evidence to support that it is a better painkiller or that it has a better side effect profile than morphine. We need to be aware that hydromorphone does have a renally cleared neurotoxic metabolite. Hydromorphone has a faster onset, greater euphoria, greater potential for abuse, and greater street value than morphine. Without any good evidence-based benefit over morphine, it shouldn't be our first choice for the majority of patients presenting to the ED with acute pain. For more on hydromorphone versus morphine, please check out our discussion on episode 126, Drugs That Work and Drugs That Don't, Part 1, with Justin Morgenstern and Joel Exjet. Next up, we've got the first in a series of EM quick hits, The Best of EM Docs. Now, for those of you who don't know emdocs.net, it's a fantastic emergency medicine foam ed blog headed up by Alex Koifman. Their associate editor-in-chief, Britt Long, was kind enough to record a series of EM quick hits for EM cases, and here's the first one on clinical pearls in the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. I recently had a 33-year-old patient with a chief complaint of generalized weakness, which she described as being worse at the end of the day. I thought this was going to be a normal, run-of-the-mill patient that I could dispo quickly, but I was wrong. Her exam revealed normal pupils, some mild ptosis, and it seemed to be weakness in the proximal muscle groups that worsened with further muscle testing. I asked myself if this could be myasthenia gravis, something we learn about in medical school, but very rarely, if ever, diagnosed in the ED. Myasthenia can be a tough diagnosis, but appropriate diagnosis can avoid myasthenic crisis. How do these patients present, and how do we diagnose myasthenia? Myasthenia is due to autoantibodies that bind to acetylcholine receptors in the neuromuscular junction, causing muscle weakness. Now that's all the pathophysiology we will cover before I put you to sleep. But this is important in understanding the patient presentation. 
Patients with myasthenia often have bulbar involvement, which is just a fancy word for cranial nerve problems, including ptosis and diplopia. Muscle groups are fatigable, especially proximal muscle groups. At the end of the day, patients notice more weakness. Back to my patient, her progressive weakness, the more I tested a muscle group, suggested myasthenia. Once the patient rests, strength slowly returns. Another important aspect is what is not impacted by the disease. Myasthenia doesn't affect pupillary reflexes, sensation, or deep tendon reflexes. You shouldn't see any fasciculations, and vital signs should be normal. If one of these parts of the exams is abnormal, you need to think about something else, such as Guillain-Barre, botulism, or spinal cord disease. In summary, patients with myasthenia will have abnormal extraocular muscles and fatigable strength with ptosis. The rest of the exam should be normal. So if your exam suggests myasthenia, how do you diagnose it? You may remember in medical school learning about the edrophonium test, but this isn't recommended and it's not available in the United States. However, we do have something lying around in the emergency department, ice packs. Place an ice pack over the patient's eye that is affected for two minutes. Then remove the ice pack and look for improvement. This test is free, safe, and non-invasive. With a sensitivity and specificity of 90% and 80%, you really can't beat it. The next time you have a patient with bulbar or generalized weakness, if you think myasthenia is a possibility, then use the ice pack test. Not only will you diagnose a subtle disease, you can set the patient on the right course for treatment. And listen, I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. When I was a kid growing up, I had a brother and a sister, and we could never agree on a show to watch. We would sit in front of the TV and we would fight and fight and fight about what we were going to watch on TV unless MacGyver was on. If MacGyver was on, we all agreed. There was no arguing, no fighting. In fact, the whole family would sit and watch this show. And we loved it. We loved watching him create and improvise. And that improvisation, that's the thing I want to hone in on. We as emergency physicians, as resuscitationists, we are experts at improvisation. It is a critical skill for us. We have to have multiple approaches to management, to procedures, because the most common or the most used approach may not work for the patient in front of us. This is most applicable to access. We do it every day, many times per day, and we need to be adept at peripherals, ultrasound guided lines, CVLs, so many different things. What we need are cheat codes. We need cheat codes to get around the fact that our patients are not always going to be the right patient for the procedure that we want to use. So let's start by talking about peripheral lines. Peripheral lines are powerful. They are great because with their short and their fat, we get great flow rates. A CVL, a triple lumen catheter, that is not the answer to I need to give volume. I need to give volume fast. So short and fat, that is the key. A 14-gauge IV can give 250 cc's per minute. Compare that with a cortis, one of those introducer lines, that only gives you 130 cc's per minute. 
Now, if you want to go faster than that 14-gauge IV, we can do that, and we can do it with a Rickline, a rapid infusion catheter. These are huge, eight and a half French, and they are very short. To place one of these, we put a wire through the peripheral IV that we've placed, which means we need at least an 18-gauge IV or larger, and then we take that catheter out, we put a skin nick with a scalpel, and then we slide the Rick line with an introducer that it comes with into that vessel. Now we've got this large eight and a half French line, and with this, we can give up to 600 cc's per minute. 600, that is more than twice as fast as that 14 gauge. So if you've got a patient who is bleeding out, who needs that quick, rapid infusion of blood, this is really the way to go. Now, of course, we can't always get peripherals, so we need to have other options and I think that the IO is underused. We should be reaching for the IO early. An IO is always, always going to be faster to place than a CVL or an introducer line. And honestly, an IO should be faster to place than a peripheral IV. There's a great video on MRAP HD outlining how we do these lines. And you see that they are done far faster than any other line that we can put in. Our mantra should be 1-2 IO meaning that we get to fail twice at peripheral line placement before we should be moving to an intraosseous line. If the patient is that sick, they're so clamped down, they're so hypotensive and poorly perfused that I can't get the line in, give it two shots and go to an IO. In fact, sometimes you can look at the patient and say, I'm not going to get an IV in and just go right to IO instead of doing that one, two. But in most patients, I think one, two IO is the way to go. And I would take that IO drill and I would give it to another user. I'm going to try twice at a peripheral line. If I don't get it in on the second shot, drill the bone. Don't wait. Don't ask permission. Just put the IO in. That takes the onus off of the first user, off of that person who's trying to put the peripheral line in, because if we can't get that peripheral line, we think of it as failure. Instead of that, we should just say, this is a challenging line to place. Let me let the person put the IO in. If you're going to be using IOs, we do need to know some things about them. Typically, they come in three different lengths. There's a 15-millimeter variety that's usually for pediatric patients. There's a 25-millimeter variety that's usually placed into the proximal or distal tibia. And then there's a 45-millimeter variety that's usually placed into the humerus. The truth, though, is that the 45-millimeter is the one I.O. to rule them all. You can put this into varying depths depending on how shallow the bone is. So if you only have one I.O. length to go with, Go with the 45 because it can be placed into any location. You'll just have some of that IO hanging out of the bone. Now, location is going to be everything. The different locations will have different flow rates. The sternal IO, if you have that device, it's a different device than the typical IO drill. That gives the highest infusion rate, about 100 cc's per minute. So it's about equivalent to an 18-gauge IV. The humeral head IO site isn't the most commonly used, but it is my go-to. It gives you a pretty good infusion rate, about 80 cc's per minute, so just slower than an 18 gauge. And it's faster than the tibial site where you're only going to get about 60 or 50 cc's per minute. While the humeral site is faster, there are some things you need to know, some tips and tricks to keep this in. What you want to do during placement is to internally rotate the shoulder and direct your IO at the humeral head. Once you're in, you have to keep that arm in internal rotation. If you externally rotate it, you're going to dislodge that IO or bend it. Cliff Reed has a great post on Resus Me showing what happens when you externally rotate an arm that has an IO in the humerus. In order to keep it in that place, you can put it in a sling or you can tape the arm to the abdomen and that'll keep it in location. Let's close this segment up with a couple of take-homes. Getting access is critical and we have to have multiple cheat codes to make this happen. 
Remember that you get higher flow with short, fat lines. CVLs are not the solution. Peripherals are best, and if you want a higher flow than a 14 gauge, go with a Rick line. Reach for the IO early with your mantra being one, two, IO. Two shots at a peripheral line, and then we're gonna go with the IO. Once you've made the decision to go IO, consider the humeral head for your primary spot. Keep it in internal rotation to avoid dislodgement. We're going to close this EM quick hits with the most powerful four-minute EM talk I've ever seen. But to transition into it, I'm going to give you an outtake from the June 2019 EM Cases course about preventing burnout with Walter Himmel. He offers three back-to-back career-changing pearls. And then after that, please make sure that you're not driving or doing anything that can divert your attention because the entire audience at the EM Cases course, I kid you not, had tears welling up in their eyes by the end of this talk. I'm actually at the point in my career, almost 20 years, where I'm supposed to get burnt out. And there's good reason for that. You know, there's there's pressure from the hospital to get good patient satisfaction. There's more pressure from the patients because they're looking at Dr. Google all the time and they want tests and they want their answers right now. And there's pressure from the college and there's pressure, there's all these pressures and some of them are mutually exclusive. And there's a lot of physicians in emergency medicine who are burning out the percentage is higher than pretty much any other specialty. And we've covered wellness and burnout on the podcast before, but I think that this is only a topic that's really come to the forefront in the last couple of years. And I think people have had a lot more time to uh, think about this topic. So the question is, in 2019, how do you stay sane as an emergency physician? And uh, we'll start with Walter. I'm just going to address the... um exceptional approaches that I take, I think there's two things that are going to help keep you sane. And number one, curiosity. If you have curiosity, every day of your life is going to be full of learning. And if you don't have curiosity, your life is going to be absolute hell sooner or later. Having friends is nice. Doing yoga is nice. Exercising is nice. If you're not curious, you'll never keep learning. If you don't keep learning, you're going to be bored out of your mind and your job is going to become very irritating. Do everything possible to nature curiosity. And that means keep learning. The moment you can go for a year or two without learning, you stop being curious, you're at risk of burnout and depression sooner or later. It's inevitable. Curiosity is absolutely essential. Point number two. You've got to absolutely be compassionate. If you're not compassionate, you will become burnt out and depressed, and I'll tell you why. You're a physician. You belong to 1% of society. Everybody wants everything from you. So here's what compassionate means. Accept the fact patients' lives are hell. Accept the fact that the CPSO has to everything to protect the public. If they don't, they'll all be fired immediately. Except the fact that newspapers have to sell newspapers, they've got to get news stories to expose. Except the fact that patients want to be seen immediately, and except the fact that someone with ear infection doesn't give a damn if the person next to them is dying. They want the ear infection treated. Just accept that fact. Once you accept those facts, everything makes sense. When everything makes sense, a lot of things will stop bothering you. I'll give you the best example. I saw a patient two days ago who's being treated at Princess Margaret Hospital. They have febrile neutropenia. Did they go to Princess Margaret Hospital? Of course not. They came to North York. Why is that? Everybody will live in North York. It's five minutes from their home. 
I accepted the fact. We're five minutes from their home. We're a hospital. We're doctors. I accepted the fact that they figured I could look after them. So I did. Was I upset about that? No, I was compassionate to the patient. It was not a problem. I have accepted the fact people are irrational. I'm okay about it. I feel sorry for them. I get it. I then referred them to the consultant. What's the first thing the consultant said? Why do they come here? I said, that's a great question. I don't know. But they live about two minutes down the street from here. That might be the reason. And we just carried on. Curiosity and compassion. I'll give you the third thing you have to do. You're never going to hear this from anybody else probably. Spend less money than you make. <laughs> Save 10 or 20% of your money every single bloody year. Avoid buying expensive houses, expensive cars, and having expensive friends who like a lot of money, and I'll tell you why. When you associate with money, you'll become corrupt. When you live in expensive areas, your context will be you're not rich anymore. And when you have expensive cars, they will lose all value. If you live at your income, it'll become meaningless, and you're going to feel poor. That's why Bill Gates and Bezos and Warren Buffett all feel poor, even though they're worth $60 billion. They're used to it. Live before your means. Save your money. By the time you're my age, you'll have so much money, you'll stop worrying about money. That's important. If you have to hit 50 years of age and work for money, you're going to be very depressed. <laughs> uh, or I, I can always count on Walter to answer questions. Oh, that was so good. We have a special guest. And as I was describing before, in almost 20 years, it's kind of time that I start getting burnt out. And probably related to getting burnt out has to do with being desensitized to the human aspect of taking care of patients. So my question for Barb here, she'll introduce herself in more detail. How can we connect with patients in a therapeutic way? So hi, everyone. As Anton said, my name is Barbara, and I've been helping out with the emergency medicine cases for the last number of years. So you might have seen me bouncing around today, wheeling stretchers and setting up food and things. I was helping out with EM cases since I was a resident at McMaster, through my emergency residency at Queen's, through my fellowship in emergency ultrasound at Western University, my first year of practice when I became staff at London, and through this past year when I haven't been working. Last June, when I was getting ready to come as part of your Toronto group, um, I was going to be working at University Health Network. Instead of walking through the doors of Toronto Western Hospital as a physician, I walked through as a patient. Last June, I had a bump growing on my head, and what I thought was a cyst was a five-centimeter tumor in my skull that was pushing on my brain. I had a sarcoma that nobody could identify, and nobody really knows what it is. I'm metastatic, and I'm now palliative. Over the last year, I've gone through a lot, and this just puts the context to my answer of Anton's question. Today, I'm not going to talk to you about the chemotherapy that coursed through my veins last summer and left me in bed, and I'm not going to talk to you about the radiation that penetrated my skull for six weeks on a daily basis. I'm not going to talk to you about the skull that was removed in October and the rotational flap that left me in the ICU for a week. 
I'm not going to talk to you about when that became necrotic and opened and failed. I'm not going to talk to you about the flap that came from my arm and had to cover that area. I'm not going to talk to you about the infection that was on my titanium plate and made the wound not healing. I'm not going to talk to you about how it opened six times before they decided that the titanium plate was infected and removed it so that now I walk around without a skull. I'm not going to talk to you about when I became metastatic in February. I'm not going to talk to you about the lesions in my pelvis or my hip that made me walk with a limp and use crutches before they radiated, or the one in my sternum that was missed on two scans and made it painful to get hugs. I'm not going to talk about losing my fertility to radiation. And I'm not going to talk about the infection and abscess that was under my scalp that was only noticed two weeks ago and caused wound dehiscence. I'm not going to talk about last week when I found out that I had multiple lesions bilaterally, top to bottom, in both my lungs. What I do want to leave with you today is the power of connection and the power of education and the power of presence. The patient-physician relationship is far more than you realize. It has an impact that lingers. I've spent more nights in the emergency department as a patient than I ever want to again. And those moments, those little moments, matter so much more than you realize. For the patient that's going through a lot, even when they don't look like they're going through a lot and they look healthy like me, it's a journey not one that anybody really wants to be on. Those little moments that you have can change somebody's life. The moments where my physicians have had heart and I can feel their heart in my care makes all the difference. And the moments when their heart's not there also makes a difference. A good friend of mine reminded me of one of my favorite quotes today by Maya Angelou, says, people don't remember what you say and people don't remember what you do, but they do remember how you make them feel. So today, thank you for making me feel heard. Mm -hmm.